This episode of Tester's Island Discs is sponsored by TestRail, a modern web-based test management tool which allows you to manage all of your testing efforts in a centralized location. To learn more about TestRail and to find out how you can sign up for a free trial, visit www.testrail.com or see the details in the show description. Welcome to Tester's Island Discs, your most musical guide to the world of software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Tester's Island Discs, where today my special guest is Micah Brinkhoff. Now, what can I say about Micah? There's almost too many things to, to describe her. She's an agile test consultant. She spends time coaching talking at conferences, and yet still manages to find time to run her own business as owner of the consultancy firm Sensibly. And this autumn, she's going to be speaking at Test Bash Manchester with her presentation, Mapping Biases to Testing. Welcome to the podcast, Micah. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm doing quite well today. I listed off all those different things you do, which is a a massive list already. But in, in amongst that, you also, you have quite a few special skills outside of work as well, particularly in the world of music. What instruments do you play? Uh, I've started playing a recorder when I was seven, I believe, and that was sort of my introduction to music. And then when I was nine years old, I started playing the clarinet, and that's what I'm still doing today, but I also can play a little bit of piano and guitar. And did you enjoy all of those from the beginning? Because a lot of time when a child is you know, given an instrument, it's that the, the parents can sometimes be pushing them to say, go on, do this. Did you, did you love it from the start? Uh, it's been going in phases. Like in the beginning, I absolutely loved it. But when I got into the age of 14, 15 and puberty kicked in, I did want to quit. But my mother always said, if you quit now, you will regret it later. And she was absolutely right. And I'm very happy that I didn't quit because it's still my biggest hobby uh, until today, really. Yeah, that's one of my biggest regrets. I I was similar as a child. I was a a reasonably good violinist uh, in in, in school. But when I got to to my teenage years, I I thought it wasn't cool and I I stopped doing it. And I, I really regret that because it was a very fun creative outlet and also yeah it was something I was I was quite good at and and I feel sad to have lost that skill yeah but learning obviously in any form either in testing or learning an instrument can be difficult at times I saw a tweet that you did recently where you were expressing your frustrations with the clarinet and how you can kind of punish yourself when you you feel you're Mm -hmm. not you're not so good at it how do you overcome those the hurdles of the challenges of the difficulty of learning oh yeah that's sometimes really a struggle because I think I can diagnose myself with being some sort of a perfectionist Mm. and that really makes you lose the joy in making music sometimes. And when that happens, I usually take a break because then there's no fun anymore and there's no point in continuing. But when I'm not in such a perfectionist mood, uh, learning to play a difficult technical part in the music is, can be very rewarding. Uh, in the beginning, you struggle, but you repeat, you repeat, you take a break, uh, you go to sleep. The next day you come back and suddenly your brain has managed to, I don't know, make your coordination better. And suddenly you can play this difficult bit in the music. And that's amazing. It makes me you know, amazed at the, the capacity of my brain of some sorts. It's 
it's about tenacity, really. Uh, you don't give up and you keep trying. And yes, I'm not a professional, so I'm probably not even playing it perfect, but at least I'm getting better. And that's very rewarding. Mm. And I think we'll talk more about your background in music as we go through your songs. Certainly looking at your song selection, there's going yeah. to be some influ influences there. You also talk about taking a break if you need to, uh, to just clear your head. You mentioned quite a lot on your Twitter page and on your blog about how you enjoy analog time. I can I can picture what that might be, but can you describe your, your concept of analog time and the sort of things that you do in that time? Yeah, well, what I found out was that Living in these modern times with your mobile phone at your side all the time and notifications going off everywhere, it just made me depressed sometimes. Like this constant thing that asks my attention and it's like I was ruled by my cell phone and my laptop. So I flipped the switch really. I turned off almost every notification on my phone. Only people who call me can reach me and my boyfriend can reach me. And that's about it. And when I get home from work, I try at least to make a conscious effort to put my phone away a lot of the time. Especially when I go for a walk, I prefer to leave my phone at home. It really makes me happier. I look around instead of looking at the screen. And I feel like it's very good for my mental health. Yeah, I'm going to be experimenting with something very similar when this episode comes out. The day this episode comes out, I will be at a music festival for five days. And when I bought the ticket, my first thought was, oh, how am I going to keep my phone charged for five days? And is there going to be enough signal to talk to people? And I kind of realized, like you said, actually, this is the perfect opportunity to turn off all of that and just you know, not worry about it. So I will be out of touch when this episode comes out. I will have to make sure, obviously, there is a, an emergency contact. But it's, it would be really nice to just switch off for a few days. It's very liberating. It is. And you will probably also experience that it's very hard how addicted mm. you've actually been to your phone. How much it is a habit to grab your phone and check Twitter or something like that. I will be curious to see how it goes for you. <laughs> so please let me know. Well, luckily, I'm going with quite a few friends. Uh, I'm going to this festival, which is called Blue Dot Festival, with Dan Billing, uh, fellow tester oh, and fellow nice. podcast co-host. We're also, Jem Hill is going to be at the festival. She's volunteering there. So there's kind of a, a little mini tester gathering in the north of England at a festival. Nice. I've gone semi-analog. I, I will be reading a lot of books. Now, ironically, that will be done on my Kindle, but my Kindle doesn't have an internet connection set up. So it's it's isolated. And that I can use that to read yeah. to escape. <laughs> Yeah, I get away with it because because it's, it's it really is easier and more convenient than carrying ten books around. So, uh, yeah, I'll allow it Definitely. for myself. <laughs> but let's get back to the reason you're here, which is you've come to this fictional Testers Desert Island, and you've been allowed to bring five songs that represent how you feel about the world and that mean a lot to you. What song was the first one you chose? Yeah, this is probably not going to make every listener of the podcast happy, but I love heavy metal. And I thought it would be fun to go on a little journey of how I got to enjoy metal. Because I know many people who can handle the guitars in metal, but they really get turned off by the, the grunting, the grunting of the lyrics instead of the clean singing. And I get it. I mean, I, I couldn't stand the grunting at first as well. And to me, it's just like uh, learning to drink coffee or learning to enjoy beer. At first, you're like, eh. But some people learn to enjoy coffee and can't go without it anymore. Hi, that's me. <laughs> and some people uh, never like coffee. And the same goes for grunting in metal. 
and I've learned to enjoy it. And this first song is, is by Dark Tranquility. It's called The Endless Feed. And it's the first song with grunts that I learned to appreciate. And that really opened up a lot more metal for me because in the end, a lot of metal is with grunts instead of clean singing. That was Dark Tranquility with the Endless Feed, complete with grunts. Now, Micah, I mentioned that you spend a lot of time consulting with other teams, going into them and coaching them to test better themselves. Kind of like the analogy about teaching a person to fish is better than giving them a fish. Uh, it allows them to, to do more in the future. When you work with other teams, how long would you typically spend sort of engaged with one team? Is that a few days or a few weeks, a few months? Yeah, even though I've always been a consultant, I don't know if I'm a typical consultant because I usually spend at least months with a client and often also with one team. My longest assignment was two and a half years at one client. And even though I've switched teams three times there, I believe, it is a pretty long gig for, uh, for a consultant, I guess. I think that's because I don't go in there to implement a tool or do a tiny task that can be wrapped up in a month or so, but I want to teach people how to test better and I want to enable the team to be able to do what is needed for testing and that just takes time also in building the relationships with people so they accept you and uh, your coaching efforts. We talked in the last episode with Paul Maxwell Walters about the challenges of abstractions in software development. The fact that there are words like quality that we, we use, we say we want to measure it, but we don't really know how to do it. When you're going into a team with the goal of making that team better at testing, what sort of ways can you measure whether you've helped to make them test better? I feel like I've accomplished something when, especially the developers in a team, don't see testing as a task that should be done by one person that we call a tester. Mm. But when the developers feel like, hey, I can also do good things for testing, be it test automation, exploratory testing, asking questions in the refinement, that sort of thing. And that's not easy to measure in the sense that you can get metrics numbers out of people but it's really about observing the people and how their behavior has changed over the span of months really 
yeah, when you go into a team, what you don't want to be doing is spending a lot of time with one person teaching that one person how to be the tester in the team because that doesn't then scale well. If you you know if you suddenly double the number of developers on a project or you double the amount of work, you're left still with one person who knows what they're doing. So I think uh, it's useful to be able to uh, pass that knowledge on to others. What sort of ways do you use to spread that knowledge to people in the team? I usually start with organizing an exploratory test session. There are always user stories in Sprint that are perfect candidates for that. And people think that all the issues uh, and bugs have been fixed. And that's an awesome moment to do exploratory test session and let people test in pairs. And then let them be surprised at what sort of crap still turns up. To let people realize, oh, there's always more to be found in our software Uh, be it UX issues or performance, load, bugs, crashes, you name it. Almost always, if you let people concentrate for just 30 minutes, you give them a test mission and say, go, then they find stuff. And then you see them thinking like, oh, wow, we accomplished this with only 30 minutes of teamwork. And I didn't expect that beforehand. And you see the you see them going, and suddenly it clicks. Uh, wow, I can do a lot for testing, and the tester can't find everything by themselves. It's impossible. And also for the developers, uh, it's a good lesson that they can test their own work if they just shift their mindset to a testing mindset. Yeah, it's like the idea of unknown unknowns. They're very confident that things are going well until they actually, you know, look at it and try and do it. And then they go, oh, right, these are all the things that you keep saying and they understand. That fits in quite nicely to bring it back to what I said in the last section. The way that I'm about to make my team realize how far we have to go is I'm going on holiday for a week and I cannot wait to find the the things they don't realize I do that I do. (laughs) It's going to be very... uh, Hopefully it's not too much for them to overcome because I'm not going to be answering my phone, but I'm looking forward to them coming back and then them saying, Neil, these are the things that we really want you to help us with. And I think, yeah, the more time you help them spend time doing it, the more they will realize. That will be a great experiment for your team. I should should do it more often, definitely. I need need more holidays. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll talk more about some of the techniques that you use with teams in the next section. We're going to talk about mob programming in particular, and we'll do that after we hear about your second song choice. Yeah. Uh, my second song is by the band Therion. It's called Schwarzalbenheim. It's a German word. It's from the album Secret of the Runes. And it's just one of my favorite songs ever from one of my favorite metal genres. Because not all metal is about grunting and creating as much noise as possible. And Therion is a band that plays symphonic metal. So it's like a marriage of guitars and classical music. So you can probably guess why I like it. Because this song has great orchestral parts and there's parts with opera-style singing, choirs, and on top of that, good guitar work. I never tire of this song, even though I've been listening to it since I was 16 years old, I think.
That was Therion with Schwarz Aldenheim. Now, Micah, I'm aware of your experiences with mob programming, something I've had a lot of encounters with as well. The first time I ever encountered it was when I was working with a development team who wanted me to get involved in it. They were saying, hey, we're doing this thing. We think you might like it. And I did. And that's kind of the way I think a lot of testers first encounter it because it's kind of a development technique. They get drawn into it and it is growing in popularity. Most people have at least heard of the term, even if they haven't done it. How did you first encounter mob programming? In a totally different way than you did, I was fortunate enough to be able to host a workshop together with Marat Puya Hervi at TestWorks Conf 2016. That was a conference organized by my then employer, Zebia. And our workshop was about how programming and exploratory testing go very well together. And Marat's style for the group was to do it in a mob. And so that was my first encounter with mob programming. And did you enjoy it? Or did you find it stressful or rewarding? Well, since I was co-host to the workshop, I wasn't in the mob. And that was kind of funny because then I could just observe it, really. And I don't really remember if I had a strong reaction to it. But because a lot of the things that Mara does make a lot of sense, I was just curious and content to observe it during the workshop. Yeah, and I think I should say, as much as I enjoy mob programming and I've enjoyed learning about it, I think when you talk to someone like Maret, who has lived it and experienced it and is very good at teaching it, that really does help to reinforce how good it is. I will try and find some resources to link to in the show notes, specifically that Maret has provided to help you see uh, the benefits of it. So having witnessed mob programming happening, what happened when you tried to take that back to your team? Well, at first, the developers had a very strong reaction against it when I mentioned it. Uh, We had a big refactor in our app and one developer did it by himself. He went underwater uh, for months, then he resurfaced, announced he was done. But when I did a first survey test, I found a huge amount of problems. And I was like, how can they think this is a good idea of having one person do all the programming and then expect it to be all right? So there was another refactor coming up and I said, well, I have a better idea. Why don't we try it and to do it in the mob? And they were like, how can that be efficient? That's bullshit. And it's better if we divide everyone that's more productive, etc. And I realized, okay, I need a different tactic here. So they resisted before they actually tried it? Yes. I have one developer in my team who's very opinionated and thinks he knows best So I really had to come with a good story before I could convince him. And of course, doing it is the best way of convincing. But my current client also has knowledge sessions. And I put myself on the list to present. uh, And I picked mob programming as the topic uh, to force myself to make a good story, make a good case about why this is so valuable. And was that quite intimidating to have to stand up and present to a group of developers about development techniques? Were you worried about how that might go? Oh, no, I love that sort of stuff. I really like to ruffle people's feathers. It's one of my hobbies, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. But one of the things I enjoy the most in my work is to get people to think about a situation and think about oh yeah, this might be a good idea of improving our situation. And I think mob programming 
it was the right time, the right moment to introduce that at that client. And having a presentation forced me to really uh, look into the history of mob programming, to read a book about it. So I learned more and I can also share knowledge. Uh, so that combination was, was really perfect. Yeah, I've given presentations about mob programming in the past. I actually, I worked in an organization where Woody Zool, the founder of mob programming, came into the office and actually gave us a, a, like a two-day workshop on, on his vision of mob programming. And when you have someone, be it Woody, be it Marette, be it yourself, who, who is passionate about something, an idea, and is able to convey that, that really does help, I think, to, to change people's mindsets. So was your presentation successful? Yeah, I, I ended my presentation with the invitation uh, for all the developers to experiment with more programming and that I would help them facilitate it. And lo and behold, the developer who was the biggest resistor came to me and said, okay, I want to try this out. <laughs> I was flabbergasted <laughs> to say the least, but also very happy because like, yes, at least now, now he's open uh, to try it out. I didn't even have to plan the session or book a room. Uh, he did all that. I just had to prepare myself for how to make the session well as fluent as possible for a first time. Like what are things that we should absolutely should do and how to make it streamlined for the group, the mob. I also want to share a podcast with Woody Zool uh, in the links, if it's possible. It's a podcast 18 minutes long and he just explains the history of more programming it's awesome for beginners yep the more the merrier i will put that link in the notes well you mentioned that you were quite outspoken sometimes about when teams aren't working well or when they could be working better and i think we're going to talk about that a lot in the next section we're going to go talk about some myths and misconceptions in the world of testing but let's uh, take a moment of peace before then what's the third song that you'd selected this is not metal but quite the opposite really it's uh, Mozart's clarinet concerto, the second movement. I have very fond memories of this song. When I was 15 years old, my clarinet teacher said it was time to listen to classical music. And he gave me a CD with this clarinet concerto on it. And it's very beautiful, especially the, the slow movement, the second movement that we will hear. And... A couple of years ago, I even had the honor of performing it with my concert band. And I played this one and it was just awesome and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was Mozart's Clarinet Concerto in A Major. You heard the version scored by John Barry for the film Out of Africa, performed by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. So when you're spending time working with lots of different teams, you obviously get to experience different things, but also you'll see similar patterns coming back and forward over and over again. And lots of these are either misconceptions about testing or things that you have to break down, and some of them can be quite annoying. Well, my favourite must be the belief that managers have, that developers might have, that all testing can be automated. What do you think it is that leads them to that belief? Why do they believe that? Man, you have good questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the end, we are trying to automate processes the code is always a boolean in the end it's always either a true or a false Mm. and then it executes so therefore test automation needs to be the same so you need to bring the messy real world back to a boolean so there's no room for a gray area and that saddens me because the world isn't black and white the world isn't a boolean so not all testing can be automated. Like you said, there are there are binary checks that you can do. And it's working out where you can get those in, I think, is the important thing. But also, yeah, revealing the what work you do that cannot be automated. And part of that is, as we said earlier, showing them what it is that you do and explaining why these things are important. And part of that is involves spreading the knowledge among the team and breaking down that theory that testers are the only ones that can test and, and establishing the importance of everyone giving quality some thought in their day-to-day work. Would you agree? Yeah, I definitely agree. Often what I do is shift the conversation away from testing and towards quality. So I would rather talk about quality and what are the risks we are facing uh, in order to achieve a good quality experience for our users. Everyone has a different idea of what testing actually means. Mm. And that is a problem. Many people believe that testing is only happening when you are actually running the software. That's a fallacy, in my opinion. Uh, Testing happens when you are thinking critically. You don't even have to run software to test. So that's what I try to teach people, that you can test by asking questions, that you can test by thinking critically about why we are building certain things, uh, that you can think about the risks that the team is facing in making good software. I absolutely agree with that. And funnily enough, I did an interview recently with Rich Rogers, former guest of this podcast. I'll link to that interview in the show notes. It was a Q&A on his website where I said, almost exactly the same thing, particularly around the idea that we we talk about testing as an activity when it's so much more than that. And the fact that we are all testing, even if we don't realize it. And the more you open people's eyes to that and help them understand what it is that they're doing and what it is that they can improve, I think that's a really useful role of a coach is, is to open people's eyes to those things. Yeah. Talk about roles brings us to, to the, the phrase that gets a lot of people's backs up, quality assurance. I'm not as as touchy about this as I used to be. I understand that some people will refer to QAs because that phrase means something to them. And I'm kind of okay with it. If if we both understand it means the same thing and we understand that yeah, the, the term assurance is a bit outdated if it, if it was ever relevant in the first place. Yeah, I, w- I would never call myself a QA. 
And if I do, I would always say I'm a quality assistant because that's a term I do believe in. Mm. But yeah, I mean, a software developer isn't writing code all the time as well. And we get what it means to be a developer. So in, in that way, I do agree with you. The, the term is wrong. Uh, and when I encounter a person who truly believes in the assurance part of the term, then I will try and engage in a conversation with that person. But it's the same with the whole testing versus checking debate. Often it does more harm than good to start a discussion all the time. Yeah, there are so many of these misconceptions that sometimes you just have to pick your battles and work out which are the important issues to solve. My current team, for example, understands very well what it is that I do and the range of things that I do. And yet our scrum board still has a column that says in QA on it. And it's like, I don't mind. I understand what they expect when something is in QA. It's not necessarily important to me right now that that's what they're calling it. But it's funny the way that testing is still something of a dark art to a lot of people. I think the industry is getting better. If you look back at least 10, maybe 20 years, I mean, I've been doing this about 15 years now. And there has been a lot of change, especially in the world of testing. The stuff that a tester does these days is a lot different to what it used to be. Definitely. Now, talking about myths takes us quite nicely onto biases. So we'll be talking in the next section about your upcoming Test Bash talk. But before that, your penultimate song choice. I wanted to let people listen to a metal song that's about as similar to pop music as metal will get. In the sense that it's got the same structure as a regular pop song, but then it's just a little louder, I guess. Uh, and the album this song is on is one of the best industrial metal albums out there. It, it's truly a classic uh, in the genre. And it's a song that I keep coming back to, even though I've been listening to it for half my life. It, somehow it seems that at the age of 31, I already am getting boring <laughs> in a way. But the song is from Fear Factory and it's called Invisible Wounds. That was Invisible Wounds by Fear Factory. Now, Test Bash Manchester is fast approaching. It's certainly the next conference that I'm going to be going to, and I can't wait. Have I been to all the Test Bash Manchesters so far? I think I have. I'll edit that out if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I think I have. <laughs> now, your talk is titled Mapping Biases to Testing. Can you explain a little bit about what's going to be covered in your talk? Well, for, for every talk that I deliver, it is always my goal to get people 
thinking. And in the Mapping Biases to Testing talk, I will share examples and stories of how biases have influenced me during my work. And I will give people tips about how they can improve and introspect on when they might be biased themselves. And I hope it will inspire people to start their own journey in their personal psychology. So it's it's a bit about self-improvement, actually. And I will also definitely point people towards useful resources uh, when they're interested to learn more about this topic. So what was your inspiration for the talk? When did you first start thinking about thinking? It was back at the Agile Testing Days 2015, I think, when suddenly a lot of talks mentioned the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And I don't exaggerate when I say that my life as a tester hasn't been the same since I read the book. It truly opened my eyes and shook some of my beliefs that I had in testing and software development. And a lot of things just made sense after reading it, such as why one tester can never find all the issues and bugs out there, and why I missed certain bugs that were staring me right in the face in hindsight, and why software projects are always taking longer than we expect, and why it's nonsense to say that a developer cannot test their own work. So after reading it, I just felt compelled almost to share what I, what I had learned from the book. And it started out as a, as a blog series that can be found on my, on my website. But I thought, well, heck, why not make a talk out of it? I can use the biases that I've already covered in my blog and make a cool story out of it. Yeah, Thinking Fast and Slow is a very, very influential book. I, I honestly can't believe that it only came out in 2011. I must have discovered it very close to the publication date, and I just assumed it had been around for you know for, for decades because it's it's a, <laughs> such an in-depth and revealing exploration of how the brain works. And the, one of the things that people take out of it or remember most is that the idea of System 1 and System 2 thinking. Can you explain the, the difference between what they are? Yeah. What Daniel Kahneman calls system one thinking is when you are doing stuff on autopilot. So, for example, if you have your driving license and you have it for quite a while, when you are driving, you're doing most of it on autopilot. You don't realize that you are shifting gears or that you are seeing a car make a strange movement that alerts you. It's only when something really unexpected happens that you shift over to system two while driving in this example. And system two is about when you are thinking slowly and when your thinking is deliberate. And what is also important to know is that we are creatures of habit. So it's not possible to always use system two thinking, the slow thinking you will always use both systems during the day. And that means that during your testing, you will also use both systems. And that could be a problem if the the risks are high, for example. You will make mistakes. That's almost a given, and that's sort of scary to realize. Mm. The fact that system one thinking is completely unconscious and you do it naturally makes it a really hard thing to to break out of or, or, to, or to, to stop doing, if that's something you wanted to do. That's why I like the idea of, if you're working particularly isolated or on your own and, and you, you're planning through something, 
I like to use the idea of having a rubber duck next to me because, you know, talking to a rubber duck, as stupid as it sounds, it makes you engage the system too and explain your decisions, whereas otherwise you do go into autopilot. And honestly, I think my, the, the system one part of my brain is trying to take over at the moment. I've done so many ridiculous things on autopilot recently like i've been at a cash machine and i've withdrawn some money and then i've walked away without taking the money or i've i put some i put some rice in the microwave in a, in a bag and i forgot to puncture the bag first and it exploded i was like my, my brain is just system one wants to win i think at the moment i don't know if it's system one or if you're just absent-minded <laughs> <laughs> but yeah daniel kahneman's book is brilliant and on the same subject just a name that I want to check is the name David McCraney, who has done a series of books. The first one, I believe, was You Are Not So Smart. He's done a range of other ones as well, and a podcast with the same title, which goes through a load of human biases and just things that we take for granted that happen to us all every day that we can't avoid. Do you have any particular sort of favourite biases, the things that the brain does that you go, I can't believe we're that daft? Well, my favourite one is the bias to rule all biases, the confirmation bias. Mm. Everyone is inclined to search for information that supports our inner belief system. And it's reflected in the people we surround ourselves with. It's reflected in the the type of news that we follow, which newspaper you read, uh, which books you read, how you behave, how we think other people should behave, our political views. It's, It's basically woven into your daily life, the confirmation bias. Yeah, and it goes a long way to explaining how things like Donald Trump getting elected and Brexit happening can suddenly surprise us because we've been either in our bubbles or we've been we've been following the news that interests us. You know, we've we've been turning. You know, we haven't been reading the news that says Donald Trump's in favour because we just like we don't believe that. That's not going to happen. But if we follow our biases, then we're going to get surprised. Yeah, and especially the the example of Donald Trump getting elected and the world not believing it. That's one of my other favorite types of feelings that associated with the confirmation bias, and it's called cognitive dissonance. And that's the discomfort you feel when you are confronted with something that does not fit into your own belief system. And for me, that was definitely true when Donald Trump got elected. And I was like, what just happened? This can't be real. But it was. (laughs) I think my favourite bias that particularly in sort of project management is the idea of the sunk cost fallacy. I'll, I'll link to some more details about that, but this is the one where you know, if you've invested in something, either you've put a lot of time into something or some money into something, then you think you're, you're committed to it and you'll just keep, go ahead and, and do, do more of it. Now, obviously, that's kind of, I think they also call it the gambler's fallacy. That's, you know, I've, I've put this much money in. If I put a bit more in, then I'll make it back. But it's also things like, I've done it before, I've I've... I've paid an amount of money to go on a holiday that I don't really want to go on. You know, it's got close and I've got other things to do. And I'm like, oh, but I should go because I paid money and I go and I'll have a horrible time. When actually, if I understand that's happening and go, actually, no, if we if we take right this moment in time as a, as a line in the sand, I can go and do this thing I don't want to do or I cannot do it. I, I use that to justify not doing things that I shouldn't do. I try and use it to, to justify making good decisions in the workplace, but that is also, that can be harder sometimes because you're fighting against politics and other people's cognitive dissonance and that sort of thing. <laughs> Biases overlap and they're horrible sometimes. Definitely, because associated with the sunken cost fallacy is the hindsight bias, because often only in hindsight, you can say, oh shit, I should have stopped right there when I had the chance. Yeah, I love biases. There are so many you can read up on. That's going to mean the, the list of resources in these show notes is going to be huge because that's one of these uh, 
rabbit holes where as soon as you click on one link, it links to another one. And you're like, oh, I want to find out more. <laughs> you're gone. Yep. <laughs> but we're running out of time. As much fun as we've had, we've got time for one more song selection from you, Micah. Yeah. And for this one, I had to choose a song of my favorite band of all times. And the band is Agaloch, and they make atmospheric folk metal. And the band uh, was not very popular back in 2006, and they came on tour in the Netherlands. And I actually befriended the people playing in the band. And I went with the, the tour in the US they had in 2011. Uh, just all around cool people and making brilliant music. Sadly, the band members got into a fight in 2017 and they split up. So it was like, it felt like the end of a chapter in my life, basically, when, when the band quit. But luckily, uh, their music still lives on. And I wanted to introduce the listeners to this band um, with the song Falling Snow. was Agaloc with Falling Snow, a band that's sadly no longer with us, but who knows, maybe with the passage of time, maybe old wounds will heal and maybe we'll hear more again. Now, thank you very much for making your five song selections today, Micah. The other thing you're allowed to take to the island with you is one book selection. Now, we've been talking about a book already. I guess that might be the one you're taking? Yes, it's sort of my personal Bible, I guess. I've read the book four times now and every time I read it, I learn something new. So I figured... I never get bored of it. I might as well take it. It is kind of a testing Bible and it's great to finally get it on the bookshelf. The one thing I worried about when we first started doing this podcast was I worried that if I had testers on, they would all be picking the same books. But you have the honor of being the one that puts Thinking Fast and Slow on the Island, a book that's a favorite of mine yes. too. So thank you very much for that. Which brings us to the end of our time on this episode. It's been fantastic fun. I wish we could talk for another hour, but we're um, we're recording this one a little bit early. So we're still in the World Cup season. We're still all optimistic Certainly at the time of recording, England are still in the tournament somehow. Uh, but in the meantime, if people want to get hold of you, Micah, where are the best places for them to do that? Definitely Twitter if you want to engage in conversation with me. And my Twitter handle is mycase. I will spell that for the English-speaking folk. It's M-A-A-I-K-E-E-S. That's where you can find me or just go to my website, micahbrinkhoff.nl. Excellent. And that's linked in the show notes. And you'll be speaking at Test Bash Manchester in September. Have you got any other events coming up that you wanted to mention? 
Um, I will also be participating in a peer conference, the DUTE, that's the Dutch Exploratory Workshop on Testing. And we're going to discuss how you can recognize skilled testers and how you can become one. So that's quite an interesting topic. And I will also be at the Agile Testing Days in Potsdam this year. I will do a workshop there together with my friend Juran Kiro. And our workshop is called Mind Busters, Test Your Mind. So it will combine biases, learning how you learn, and coaching all into one workshop. So that will be very cool, I think. Busy times ahead for sure. As for us, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter at Testers Island. All the usual other links are in the show notes. If you want to hear our Spotify playlist, see our Goodreads list of all the previous books that have been selected and the link to sign up to be a guest on the show. A big thank you for everyone who's applied already to be on the show. That list is growing and growing and growing. It's almost at 50 people now. So apologies to those who I haven't got back to. Your name has not been lost. (laughs) We'll get around to you. And the exciting news is that through August and September, this show will be coming out weekly. So you've got more guests to look forward to. Uh, That backlog will start to come down and um, fun times for all, apart from my ability to sleep. (laughs) 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 But for now, enjoy the rest of your summer and I'll speak to you in two weeks time. Thank you very much, Micah, for coming on the podcast. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you. And I'll speak to the rest of you soon. Bye. Testers Island Discs is brought to you in association with the Ministry of Testing, written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Tony Lovich. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island. <laughs>